This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julie Amacher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I asked Christopher Tin, how did he end up teaming up with the British vocal ensemble Vocious 8? Well, he said they shared a recording engineer and they met about a decade ago and they've been looking for an opportunity to make a project together. And it finally happened. It's called The Lost Birds. And that's what we'll learn about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, Christopher... Let's just start off by having you tell me how you're doing. I'm doing a lot better now that the pandemic is largely in the past, um, and it's exciting to be making music again. I know the last time we talked, um, don't you have like a little toddler at home and you were getting a lot of time with your toddler? (laughs) Maybe a little too much time, but she's now four and a half and she's wonderful. And we're very excited to explore the world and show her the world now. Wonderful. Well, the last time you and I spoke, you had just released To Shiver the Sky, a recording based on the history of mankind's quest to fly. And now you've put out a recording about flight once again, but this time it's about birds in flight. So I'm curious, is there any connection between these two recordings in terms of the concept of flight? You know, I think... Julie, that at one point I was actually trying to make one recording that actually had material from both. Uh, But then I realized the subject matter was so disparate that it had to be two different recording projects. And so To Shiver the Sky came first, and then the other material that I'd sort of set aside for The Lost Birds, um, I was finally able to revisit once To Shiver the Sky came out. So they do come from the same route, I suppose, but they their flight paths diverged, to use a bird metaphor. <laughs> Often your ideas might start with a theme song from a video game. Is there any video game connection this time around? There is no video game connection, but the main overture of The Lost Birds is actually a melody that I'd written years ago for a documentary about bird extinctions, actually. And so this this subject has been on my mind for more than 10 years now. And this one little tune that I wrote um, 11 years ago um, has stayed as something that I wanted to... uh, expand upon um, in a a more sort of like a choral requiem format. And so I finally got the chance to do that with Voces 8 during the pandemic. I was thinking about how the choral concept is certainly not new to you. It almost seems to be a passion of yours. And I was wondering, how did you develop this collaboration with Voces 8? Well, you know, I mean, in my town, Los Angeles, we say that, you know, my people talk to their people and just kind of made it happen, right? In truth, I've actually known about Voces 8 since the group's foundation because we share a mutual recording engineer. And so around the time when I was releasing my first album, Calling All Dawns, they were releasing their first album. And of course, our mutual friend said, you have to listen to Christopher Tin, you have to listen to Voces 8, and sort of connected us then. Um... But for the last decade, I've sort of been trying to find the right project to work on with them. And ultimately, when it came time to develop the Lost Birds conceptually, we everyone realized that the ideal group to do this 
would be Voce's eight. And so we, we made it happen. Let's talk about the theme or the message in this recording, which is a memorial to the lost birds and also the loss of other species due to human activity. Talk a little bit more about how this became the focus of this recording and why it's so important to you. Well, I think I've always been sort of environmentally aware, as one should be, and I've been concerned more and more in recent years about the loss of wildlife and all the terrible headlines that come out seemingly every month about, you know, new records being broken in negative ways about, you know, global warming and temperatures and and catastrophic climate change. And in a way, I wanted to bring something into the world that spoke softly about what this meant. In, in metaphorical terms. I've been very captivated by the metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, which you may know comes from the 19th century. And this practice where miners used to bring a canary down to the coal mines with them. And if the canary died, it meant there was a, a buildup of poisonous gases in the coal mine. And the miners would be next to perish themselves. And I thought there's no better metaphor in a way for um, the impending uh, change in the climate and what it could mean for our own civilization. And so I took this metaphor and I essentially made um, an entire choral piece out of it. We talk about birds in the first half and we celebrate their beauty, but over the course of the second half, the birds vanish and eventually the texts become more suggestive of uh, humans going extinct and not just birds themselves. And so this was a bit of a... uh, I like to say a soft activist message from me about, you know, the where these extinctions are leading us. Well, I don't know how soft it is when you're talking about us being extinct. I mean, I'll just be honest. <laughs> that seems like a pretty forward message to me. I think it, my feeling about um, activism in music is that there's certain genres of music which are more conducive to say forceful activism or immediate calls to action. I mean, I think of, of, you know, pop or rock anthems, you know, or going back to the 70s, you know, about songs like, uh, you know, lyrics like, all we are saying is give peace a chance, right? Those punchy sort of messages carry a lot more sort of immediacy in, in popular culture. But something like a choral requiem, it by nature lends itself to a different form of activism than the punchy pop song. And so I I tried to explore that a little more in this format. I guess a little more spiritual, perhaps. I think so. I think a little more emotional as well, or perhaps a little more reflective, a little more meditative, but it's a very different format for delivery of some sort of message. You're paying tribute to these birds by adopting a distinctly 19th century musical vocabulary Some of it is the tunefulness of folk songs. Why did you decide to do that? Well, in a way, I started to look at the the time period when we started really affecting the climate, which was basically the Industrial Revolution. And I looked at that from sort of a historical standpoint, because um, that was the first time there were these major collapses of species, uh, notably uh, with the lost birds the passenger pigeon. Um, And if you don't know the story of the passenger pigeon, it was a bird that flourished all throughout the 19th century. And in fact, at one point, there were up to 5 billion of these birds flying over the skies. I mean, the flocks were so enormous that 
when passenger pigeons flew overhead, the sky would darken for days, and the, the sound of their wings flapping was like thunder. But within a few short decades, because we needed food for our rapidly growing urban centers, we hunted them to extinction. Literally, we shot five billion birds out of the sky with crude 19th century technology, which made me think, what can we do now in the 21st century when we have things like, you know, global warming and deforestation and and pesticides and things like that? And so... You know, to tell this story, I immersed myself in the vernacular of the 19th century, both musically and poetically. And, you know, as you, you have no doubt seen, the, the four poets that I cho- chose to set to music are all 19th century poets. Emily Dickinson, Sarah Teasdale, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Christina Rossetti. I really wanted to create a bit of a time capsule as a way of looking at history, as a way of reflecting on where we are now. Was there significance to choosing four women poets? Well, three of them just happened to be my favorite poets anyway. Um, and I thought, well, why not? Just go four, 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 right? Edna St. Vincent Millay was somebody who had actually, I knew some of her poems and some of her, her uh, you know, her, so the metaphors she used um, were have just always stayed with me. Like, you know, she was the one who wrote the poem, My Candle Burns at Both Ends, you know, that that metaphor. I love it. Um, uh, you know, th- was there a significance? Yes, somewhat. I mean, there are ways that you can, I can go into, for example, um, you know, sort of the expectations of women poets back then and how they had to be, you know, like a little more reserved in what they said. Um, but really, they just happened to be my favorite poets. And, um, you know, yes, it's it's a nice coincidence, but... You don't always need to make a big deal about celebrating, um, you know, f- women poets. You can just do it and not, you know, pat yourself on the back that you're doing it. You know, I I just happen to love these women. Well, that's our hope, right? With women composers, women poets, um, yeah, people who have not been in the forefront so much. These women saw their world transform from a pastoral society to an industrial one Can you talk a little bit about what they were writing about and how you're able to reflect those words through your music? I think that largely what I was interested in was finding poems about birds. So it starts there. Birds, as you know, figure into our language more prominently than any other animal does. I mean, we have so many linguistic branches or metaphors and, 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 you know, figures of speech that come from the bird vocabulary. Um, you know, each of these women had a sort of a different experience in the 19th century. Um, they came from different socioeconomic classes. They experienced different levels of, of, of prominence and notoriety in their lifetimes. What drew me to them most of all, though, was the lyricism that they imbued in their poetry. Um, and that lyricism varied very much from Sarah Teasdale's very sort of hypnotically simple, almost lullaby-like verses that contained sort of a hint of melancholy all throughout. To sort of the, the more formal Christina Rossetti odes. 
And with each of these poets, I try to imbue a different character in my setting of their words. Um, the Emily Dickinson poems, for example, that I set. The melodies are, are much more ranging and, and, and um, complex in, in terms of their pacing and, and the intervals in which the singers sing. Whereas my setting of Sarah Teasdale tends to be sort of um, simpler in a way, um, a smaller, smaller intervallic singing from the singers. Um, you know, my, my setting of Edna St. Vincent Allais, who I thought was kind of more the most cosmopolitan of the bunch really, tends to be more chromatic and lush and maybe more jazz infused. So there was definitely a nod to the perceived biographies of, of, you know, these women that I sort of imagined in my own head. The Saddest Noise is based on an Emily Dickinson poem, and it's a very uplifting piece, at least it was to my ear, even though the title and the words might get me thinking, oh, why is this so uplifting when it's about the saddest noise? That's, I think, the magic of a lot of this poetry. It's perhaps uplifting or beautiful on the surface, but there is often something to it. Uh, you know, the saddest noise is, of course, the first words of the poem, but the next words are the sweetest noise. And that's sort of the magic of the poetry as well, and the magic of, of um, you know, immersing yourself in the wor- world of birds like this. There is a built-in beauty, but there's also a built-in sense of longing and loss. And that's sort of what I tried to encapsulate from the get-go. The Saddest Noise is the second movement of the album, and um, I felt that it was very important, actually, to create uh, beauty in the first section of the album, such that that beauty could be taken away rather cruelly, in fact, taken away by the end of the work, such that you're left with a sense of longing of the beauty that once was. And that, in essence, is what the words of The Saddest Noise are. You know, these are the, the saddest noise is the, you know, the the bird songs that we no longer hear. And that um, is really the, the crux of the album. You know, these are songs from birds that are no longer heard. And in a way, we're trying to find a new way to bring voice to them. Is the intermezzo about the passenger pigeon? It is. It very much is. In fact, both the overture, Flocks a Mile Wide, and intermezzo are about the passenger pigeon. Um, the way I think about it in my own head is the, the work is split into two halves, and the intermezzo is the dividing movement between the two. And in a way, the intermezzo is an ode not just to the passenger pigeon, but the last passenger pigeon, uh, a bird named Martha, who was held in captivity in the Cincinnati Zoo until, I think, 1914, when she finally died. And, you know, there was something about going from an overture that celebrated 
billions of these birds in the air and the, the stunning beauty of seeing murmurations of birds uh, in the sky. Down to one final living member of its species and its plaintive wail, which is played on the solo cello. This is the moment where, you know, we realize that, in a way, this is an album about death. It starts off beautifully and, you know, as a reprise of the, the, the opening movement, the overture, but then it takes a very sort of dark turn midway through, and it becomes very somber. And this solo cello sort of rises up and, and sings out this, this, this cry. Um, and at that moment, we know um, things are about to get much darker. And I think that's the movement in a way that, that has a, a lot of emotional impact for me just right then. And then to follow it up with Voce's gorgeous vocals on Dust in the Winter, I mean, you know, it launches us into this second chapter where we start to examine ourselves and our own future. Thus in the Winter is based on Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem. And this is a very layered piece. It sounds to me really kind of like classic Vouchers 8 to me. What were you going for with this work? Across all 12 movements, or the 10 movements where Voce's 8 sings, I tried to have a sort of multiplicity of choral styles. Everything from, you know, um, a homophonic chant-like piece, like There Will Come Soft Rains, to something that was much more sort of layered and polyphonic and motet-like in a way. Um, and Voce's, of course, they sing everything beautifully. And the, right, the chance to write contrapuntally for them was something I, I just relished. Um, and I, I really enjoyed writing this particular movement, in fact, because what the way that I think of writing choral parts is almost like the way that birds fly in a flock. You know, the different voices are individual birds, and they all sort of have their own motion. But collectively, they have a group motion to them. And that group motion, you know, it's, it, it's, it's directional and it's made up all of all these individual threads. But a piece like Thus in the Winter is sort of a realization of that movement. A lot of different individual lines weaving around, sometimes coming together in big cries. But often diverging and doing their own things. There's a very haunting quality in the song, There Will Come Soft Rains. And of course, that goes with the text by Sarah Teasdale. Talk about that piece, please. This has actually been one of my favorite poems since uh, I discovered it, actually, as, as a teenager reading Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. There's actually a chapter in that book where... Um, they talk about the extinction, uh, this dystopian future colony in on Mars where humans have basically gone extinct and robots now run the, the place. And in doing a little more research about the poem, um, I found that Sarah Teasdale had written it in 1917, during the height of the, the First World War. And the First World War is interesting to me because it's, it's an era when, for the first time, mankind realized that we could really, really uh, inflict massive death on an enormous 
scale upon ourselves, right? It was the first time as a, as a collective that we realized that we had the power within our hands to be our own undoing. And that moment in history really resonates with where we are today in my mind, almost 100 years later when our own extinction is not just this abstract concept, but it's actually something that could happen. Um, and so I needed to set this within the Lost Birds. And you're right, there's this haunting quality to it because in essence, this is the poem that talks about the fact that not only have birds vanished now, but potentially there will be a world without humans. And if that happens, will anyone be left to care? That's one of the existential questions that the Lost Birds asks. I have to say, when I was reading the poetry, which is in the liner notes, I was thinking, wow, this is way too contemporary. I mean, really, like you said, a hundred years later, these messages still ring true. And are we learning anything? Um, I hope so. All That Could Never Be Said is another piece based on poetry by Sarah Teasdale. And this is very beautiful with a few solos. And I'm thinking, is this about the afterlife? This is a very cryptic poem in a way, but I think of it as a poem about regret, about thinking that, you know, all, you know, all these things that you could have done, you could have said after, after the fact. Um, you know, they'll haunt us. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's one of these typical Sarah Teasdale things where it's like you don't quite know exactly what's being said here. But the sentiment of it is is dead on, you know, that we we talk a good game and we, we know the issues. But ultimately, will it be too late for us, um, uh, you know, having not actually said enough or done enough? Are we in that place globally where, you know, our regrets will come back to haunt us because we did not act in time and we did not do the right things? And um, it's a very difficult poem to set emotionally in a way uh, because of that. Um, but I found that with Sarah Teasdale, often the most simple sort of lullaby-like melodies match best with, with her words. And um, that's how I chose to set this. Springtime is usually a very joyous time, especially if you live in a climate where there is snow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like this sense of hope, um, you know, as we see things come back to life. And that's the feeling, at least, that I was getting in the song, I Shall Not See the Shadows. It's a gorgeous piece, and it feels to me kind of like that, oh, spring is coming back, the birds may come back too. 
I think you're absolutely right about that, Julie. Actually, there is definitely a seasonal structure to this album. I mean, the literally the first words that you hear Bochazate sing are between the March and April line, starting us off in spring. And then midway through the album, we have Thus in the Winter, right? And um, a, a, one of the sort of recurring themes of a lot of what I do is ending on a note of hope or, or um, you know, the return of spring in a way. And And yes, this does bring back spring. Um, in fact, there is a literal reprise of the saddest noise in this movement as well. So you're, you're absolutely right. You know, whether that's actually a statement about how this story will end for us or not, I sort of leave to the listener. But I felt that one must always end on a note of hope because if you want people to actually appreciate the message and potentially take action. You can't leave them without the possibility of hope. You have to say, you know, things are reversible and things are, um, we can, we can correct course. Um, and hence, that's why I ended the whole work on a setting of Emily Dickinson's poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Conscious eight really lingers on that word hope over and over and over again. And I believed them. I was like, this is this piece was very calming to me, like there is hope. That's wonderful. Talk a little bit more about your intentions with that. I had always known that I wanted to set hope is the thing with feathers as the concluding movement of the Lost Birds. And I always knew I wanted to reprise the main theme that was associated with the passenger pigeon's demise as the final movement. And the voces, they they bring it to life beautifully. And like you said, you know, the very last words that they sing are hope repeated over and again. Hope, hope, hope. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea Yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Boy, that last line really gets to me, though. It's like, nothing is asked of us, but are we going to do something about it anyway? You know? Wow. Yeah, right? Yeah. The Lost Birds, music of Christopher Tin and the British vocal ensemble Voces 8, helping to bring that music to life. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.